If you were to ask your uh, friendly search engine uh, what Australia's national dish is, it'll almost invariably come up with uh, one result, the meat pie, although as a result of globalisation it might also suggest the Big Mac. In this spirit of inquiry, I'm going to be speaking to the award-winning food writer Anya von Bremsen about uh, the national dishes of six other countries. Dishes so famous that apparently you know, some people purchase plane tickets with the, uh, with, uh, with these meals in mind. Now, Anya explores these uh, dishes in her new book, National Dish Around the World in Search of Food History and the Meaning of Home. Anya, welcome to our little wireless program. And let's begin by going back to your home, your childhood in Moscow. Well, thanks for having me on, Philip. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, yes, Moscow is a very interesting example of how one country becomes another country. Because when I was born there and when I grew up there, it was the capital of the empire called the USSR. And uh, in 1990, that empire went bust. And all its constituent ethnic republics from Ukraine, which we hear so much about today, to Uzbekistan, to Georgia, separated and became independent country. So I refer to myself as a person who grew up in a country that's been deleted from maps. Although, you know, Putin would very much still <laughs> like to see uh, the old empire resurrected, which is why this ugly war with Ukraine is, is happening. Now, you and your mum emigrate to the U.S. and you are now a Jewish-Russian-American national. Yes, and I have a house in Istanbul. Uh, so I'm a total sort of wandering soul. Uh, what they used to brand in the Soviet Union... Uh, a rootless cosmopolitan. And this was part of the reason why I decided to write this book, because we all live in this extremely globalized world of hyphenated identities uh, and identities that shift depending on the situation. At the same time, so we're kind of these rootless people, what uh, one philosopher, Sigmund Bauman, calls liquid modernity, uh, kind of a world with no permanent bonds. On the other hand, that produces kind of an opposite reaction. We're trying to tie food to place, to search the idea of home, to search our own roots. And uh, I think to examine this paradox, food is a really great lens to look at history, at culture, and at our state of internal state of affairs, as well as uh, the rise and fall and the rise again of nationalism all over the world. And you, when I first went to the old Soviet half a century ago, the main thing I noticed about food was that it was extremely short for the locals, fine for tourists, but hard for them. But uh, you, of course, remember a wide variety of Soviet foods, don't you? No, absolutely. Uh, I, in fact, my previous nonfiction book was a memoir called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, uh, and it's been translated into almost 20 languages. And it was a memoir about shortages, about food lines, but also about the extreme longing that we projected onto food. Food just meant so much for us because there was so little of it. And also in Moscow, one grew up with the food of an empire. 
it was very multicultural. We had an Uzbek pilaf, we had a Ukrainian borscht, uh, which is a matter of uh, contestation right now. Uh, we had we have a Georgian spicy chicken. So one one had a sense that it was a multicultural, multi ethnic entity where over a hundred languages were spoken, and so they, you know, the Soviets endlessly promoted, you know, this idea that. We were a big, big empire, you know, and we were, you know, one-sixth of the world's landmass. And uh, it was, you know, this kind of imperial uh, boastfulness that was, you know, quite toxic. But at the same time, for a child like me, it was fascinating. And yeah, I first visited America after going to Russia, to the Soviet. Oh. And the first thing that shocked me about American food was not only its abundance, but the size of helpings. You must, too, have suffered culture shock. Oh, it was an absolute culture shock. I describe it in my previous book, in Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, where we came from a culture of shortages, of standing in line for one's crony chicken, uh, to this you know vastness, this air-conditioned vastness of an American supermarket. And... Uh, our competitors had very different reactions. Some would just fall on the floor and start crying. And some would just look at the food and say, well, this is so alien and so weird. And this, you know, massive chickens that in <laughs> fact have no flavor. This massive strawberries that also have no flavor. And also, also there was all these mishaps. You know, my uh, some Russians, some immigrants would buy floor wax and think it was butter, and they would put it on bread. And then they would say, oh, American butter is so disgusting. And uh, yeah, no, it was funny. It was tragic. It was, it encapsulated, you know, the whole uh, sort of displacement and homesickness and the alienation. And honestly, it took me years and years to get <laughs> used to, <laughs> to American food, you know, the massive burgers. Oh, the sundaes. Have you had, ever had an American ice cream sundae? Yes. It's huge. Yes, skyscraper-sized <laughs> pile up of you know everything that just doesn't really belong together. Yes, <laughs> I I like the story you tell about your mother with pop tarts. She'd eat them raw, not realizing they were meant to be toasted. Exactly, exactly. No, so many things that we did wrong. Uh, but who knows? I mean, there were like seventeen kinds of breakfast cereal, <laughs> and we come from a culture where they didn't have breakfast breakfast cereal. You and I could do a whole program just on the invention of the breakfast cereal and how it transformed the American diet and went on to to pretty much dominate the world. Now, there's a paradox in the idea of national dishes because, as you point out, the concept of the nation is relatively new. Oh, absolutely, and we don't think about it. We imagine that nation is the same as a country, and a country is something primordial, something that always existed, you know, based on language, on some kind of kinship. But think about it. The early 19th century, uh, France has just formed. Italy is not going to form for another 60 years. Uh, Japan is a collection of disparate islands. Um, and like that, there's no Greece. Uh, there's no Germany as we know it. So that nation building process, it really kind of started for real with the French Revolution, which supplied the idea of a nation, an entity with common laws, common language, governed in the name of equal citizen, which was very revolutionary back then, uh, because you had absolutist kingdoms, you had monarchies, you had empires, 
which was really the default political order. But think about it course, in Italy. Across Italy, you had the city-state and, uh, and cooking was absolutely specifically regional. Exactly. So Naples was, which I examine in this book, in National Dish, because it's such an important food city. It's the capital of the two Sicilies, its own kingdom. Uh, and the northern Italians think of it as something like Africa. You know, they still do. I was recently in Naples and I've met this lovely tourist from Torino. And they and they really said those words. They said, oh, Napoli, Africa. I'm like, I look at them, my God, you know. I mean, there's still, it's still a country that doesn't fully believe in its own unification because... Uh, the contrasts are so drastic. And think about it, in 1860, less than 10% of people can read or write standard Italian. Can't Let's they? stick with the myth, the legend of Naples and the pizza, in particular the margarita. How did uh, it supposedly come about? Well, Naples is, in fact, the true home of the pizza. Like, there's so many of the national dishes uh, are shared by so many countries, uh, and they can be contested. Like, who does hummus belong to? Um, but pizza is very specific to Naples, and it's very specific to Neapolitan overcrowding. Na 19th century Naples is 10 times the urban density of Victorian London. Imagine, many people are living on the streets, they're living in utter poverty, and pizza for them is what they call the pronto soccorso dello stomaco, which means the first aid of the stomach. And uh, in fact, it's produced in a specific Neapolitan oven, and they've recently discovered in the excavations of Pompeii, an oven that's very similar, tomato first met uh, dough in Naples again in uh, the 1780s. And that's undisputable. That is, in fact, recorded. Uh, so you have this peculiar Neapolitan peculiarity, which to northerners, the northern Italians, doesn't mean anything. And then you have the myth that after the unification, Margarita, the blonde queen of Savoy from Piedmont, from the north, comes to Naples, and she is at her palace in Capo di Monte, which is now a beautiful museum, and she decides to order a pizza because she wants to bring herself close to the, uh, to the people, to the popolino who eat pizza. So they call upon this famous pizzaiolo, Raffaele Esposito, who delivers a pizza uh, to the palace, uh, and it has this patriotic tricolore, <laughs> the three colors of the Italian flag, the white mozzarella, uh, green basil, red tomato, and Margarita allows it to be named after her. Of course, nothing about this story is true. In fact, <laughs> it was fake, it was a ploy uh, cooked up by this uh, famous pizzeria Brandi that claimed that you know it was run by the descendants of this pizzaiolo esposito. And in fact, the story originates from the 1930s. So it's absolute fake lore. But does it make it less important for the Neapolitans? Does it make it in a way less real? This is what I examine in National Dish. The fact that urban legends, they thrive for a person, for a purpose. There's patriotism involved. Uh, there's, of course, brandy. There's uh, regional pride, city pride, and just kind of the sense that they need to protect the pizza, which is so Neapolitan, from globalization. You began your journey in France and uh, more specifically in Paris. Well, that will hardly surprise anyone listening. But it's 
obviously a natural starting place. For so many reasons. I mean, first of all, I have to say, I'm not a fan of Paris. I always find it so overbearing, you know, this pomposity, and especially regarding the cuisine, this whole idea that France gave birth to gastronomy, uh, that is so superlative, is so much better than anything. But still one has to start there because it gave us terms like chefs and gastronomy. It's a country with the first cookbook in the world with a national title, Le Cuisine Française, uh, from late uh, 1700s. It's where the restaurant was invented, believe it or not, because restaurant comes from restorative, restaurant, and the first restaurants were places that served restorative broths to the Enlightenment bourgeoisie and aristocracy who believed that it would cure, you know, having some of the broth <laughs> would cure them. So France and France kind of articulated the idea of cuisine as being part of the culture uh, that's exportable, which they did, in fact, you know, all these 19th century chefs that served at all these different palaces from Mexico to Japan. So it's a very important place for cuisine. I love, I, go- I, lo- I love the fact that this... Uh, pot on the fire dish was approved of by both Voltaire and Balzac. Yes, and Flaubert, every writer basically wrote about pot a feu, uh, this kind of boiled dinner, as the essence of Frenchness. Even Willie Beck more recently wrote about it. So it's kind of like this exemplary national dish. It's got meat, it's got vegetables, it's all in the soup. Uh, but what I discover is this. Paris has become a totally globalized city. It's like Sydney or like Melbourne. So when I try to interview people about pot and research it for real, people are telling me, oh, this is a great place for dim sum, uh, what you call yam cha. There's this fantastic Bauer burger. Oh, there's a mezcal bar, just like Brooklyn, and you can get a proper Israeli chocolate babka. So, so you're, what Paris, you're saying is that Paris is in an existential crisis. I don't think it's a crisis, but that's the thing. I think uh, it finally caught up with the world and it embraced uh, globalization in the good parts of globalization. And yes, there's still pride in its own cuisine. uh, But as one very important intellectual and food critic told me trying to explain the situation, Paris became interesting when we abandoned the idea of a national cuisine. I said, but what are you saying? This is France. It's natural cuisine is so important. And he's like kind of, oh, whoops, what did I just say to this journalist? But it was a very funny moment. And it really made me question what happens to the idea of a nation, of a national cuisine, of a national culture in the era of this intense globalization where we have the so-called global Brooklyn all the hipsters with tattoos uh, <laughs> that you know eat uh, the same sourdough bread and drink the same craft beer and uh, brew their own wine or whatever. It's 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 a global community. I'm having my first delicious interview in decades with uh, with Anya <laughs> von Bremsen, award-winning food writer, and her book is called National Dish. Now let us whiz off to Japan. Tell me about uh, tell me about this Japanese thing called ramen. Well, ramen is very popular in Australia as well. I'm sure it's another global phenomenon like pizza. It's a noodle dish 
in broth with toppings. Um, and uh, it's something of a national dish in Japan. It really fueled the post-war, post-World War II reconstruction in a very important way. I mean, it was another, and it was like pizza, another cheap carbohydrate that could feed a nation. Um, but the fact is, of course, it's a Chinese origin dish and it spread from the treaty ports, from the Chinatowns of Japanese treaty ports uh, like Nagasaki and Yokohama and into the mainstream starting between the two world wars. Uh, it kind of came out of its uh, Chinese ghetto because even the name, the Japanese name for ramen was uh, very derogatory. Uh, but um, but then it broke out of its ghettos and it became a really important dish because it fueled the post-war reconstruction and the Olympics boom. And then in 1956, a guy called Momofuku Ando invents the greatest Japanese invention, which is instant ramen. Just add hot water and there you have this noodle dish that can feed a country, and the Japanese are genuinely proud of this invention. You know, it's interesting. Not- you point out that uh, MacArthur was very worried that famine could push uh, Japan towards uh, communism, and uh, so this dish, in fact, was a sort of political solution. It relied on American surplus uh, wheat, yeah, and there was all this propaganda about American wheat because Japanese are traditionally rice eaters, uh, but American to avert a red scare, it was dumping its agricultural surpluses uh, in Japan, in, in other Asian countries. So, yeah, in fact, instant ramen very much relied on American wheat, which is such a paradox. But here's another paradox. The inventor of instant ramen, you know, the invention the Japanese are most proud of is Momofuku Ando. He is, in fact, Chinese. From Taiwan. <laughs> okay, you've mentioned rice. Uh, I understand from you that it is now, uh, well, falling away. Yeah, the consumption of rice. I mean, my other dish that I, I researched, so I researched two dishes in my Tokyo chapter. One is ramen, which is a Chinese-originated dish, and another is rice, which is really the hollowed cornerstone of the Japanese diet with the miso soup, with three side dishes. It's called gohan, cooked rice. Uh, and it's been really elevated into an international symbol, uh, into this national treasure. All the Japanese children learned that it's the most sacred thing. But in fact, since the 1960s, the rice consumption have been going down drastically. And, and rice is really in trouble. I think Japan has fallen into, you know, 20 somethings place, even maybe 40th in rice consumption, despite, you know, this importance to the culture. And again, Tokyo, like Paris, completely globalized city and where trends are adapted and appropriated. You literally, when you ask Japanese people about McDonald's, they say, well, but McDonald's is Japanese. They call it Magdo. They think Starbucks is Japanese. There's every kind of French food, Every kind of Italian food, uh, every kind of regional Korean food, American food, all the global trends there in Tokyo. So why would Japanese be eating, you know, the same diet that their ancestors ate, right? Uh, in fact, uh, croissants and bread um, have overtaken rice uh, and have overtaken onigiri. So it's, again, you have this interesting paradox. On one hand, you have do have national pride. 
uh, and great investment, spiritual investment and financial investment into bolstering the idea uh, that food is part of the national brand. On the other hand, you have real people who are turning away from it. Let's now jump to Mexico, which is pretty much what you did because you went there to get married, of all things. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't go get... I, I, I went to work. I went to write a chapter of a book uh, that was really fascinating that was about mole, which is a very complex Mexican stew, uh, and it really represents Mexican identity, which the Mexicans called mestizaje, uh, meaning a fusion of Spanish colonial and indigenous influences. And the idea of Mexico identity is changing. It's leaning more indigenous now than before. It's at least acknowledging all these indigenous people uh, and indigenous languages. And there's been you know great progress in that in the last 10, 20 years. Um, so I went to research mole, and it's a huge fiesta food. You know, you have it for parties. And I'm also researching tortillas, and I'm falling in with this incredible cooks in Oaxaca, which is Mexico's most indigenous state. And they're all trying to teach me moles and how to make tortillas, which is extremely hard and such a difficult labor for women. And we drink a lot of mezcal which is an agave spirit, kind of like tequila, but more interesting. And we meet this mezcal producer who is also a shaman. And he looks at us, my partner and me, we've been together for 30 years, uh, but we've never married. And he said, well, how long have you been married? We go, oh, mm -mm, not exactly married. And he looks at us very <laughs> solemnly and he said, well, how come, you know, how come you're not married? You're like, older people, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, he said, well, you know what? I'm a shaman and I've married people before and I could marry you. And then my chef, my cook friends who own restaurants, they jump in and they say, yes, let's have a boda. <laughs> and so my research into this mole, you know, which is the ultimate fiesta food made for weddings, turns into my own wedding, which is completely unexpected. And my partner and I kind of just look at each other and they would say, you know what, why not? So we ended up being married on uh, the roof of a friend's restaurant in Oaxaca in a shamanic ceremony uh, where this guy Tucho and his brother, they came from the mountains. Uh, they had all the special herbs that they were waving at us and they were saying all these things in Zapotec language, which we didn't understand, but which was so moving. Uh, I had a white traditional dress. Uh, all these friends that we made were uh, there. There were about 40 people. So then they saw it was, yes, one of the unexpected wonders of uh, doing a book project like this. <laughs> now, you write these words, which I find charming. Everything one eats here resonates with social issues, Indigenous rights, environmental justice and gender equality. And I should add to that, like in Australia, it's amazing that Indigenous food traditions have survived. Despite all the assault that, uh, that came from the colonists, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable how much, for instance, the colonists denigrated uh, the maize, the local corn culture, and how much they wanted to impose wheat and, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, bread really was overtaking maize tortillas. Uh, but then came NAFTA, 
the trade agreement and it flooded Mexico with American GMO corn. And the whole kind of movement, grassroots movement, rose up to defend corn and tortilla production, handmade tortilla production, as a national symbol and as a national treasure. Um, and uh, so you think these were national foods for so long, but in fact, this is something very recent that goes back to the 90s. Tell and, me you know, tell me about the significance of tortilla. I know you spoke to women about this. Did they see it as a, a symbol of enslavement or empowerment? Well, this was my question. Uh, because most, 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 we have to admit that most, most of Mexico's uh, tortillas are machine made from maseca, which is this, this horrible dehydrated maize uh, that's completely industrial. But for indigenous women, making tortillas by hand is a special distinction. Uh, their families would not eat another woman's tortillas. But at the same time, to make 100 or 200 tortillas for a large family takes most of the day. Uh, you have to soak the corn the day before in in lime, in the solution of lime slag. Then you have to take it to the mill to turn it to dough. Then you have to make it even smoother with this really heavy stone grinder. And then you're sitting there on your knees, inhaling wood smoke, which is really bad for the lungs. And being on your knees is really bad for the shoulders and for, for knees. So there's all kinds of injuries. So this is what women are doing for many hours a day if they want to produce homemade tortillas for their families. So I'm going around asking women whether they see it as empowerment or slavery. And everyone is always startled by this question. They kind of just take it for granted. And then they have to admit that, yes, it is kind of a domestic slavery. On the other hand, to preserve your indigenous identity, uh, to preserve the idea of the hearth, you have to make the tortillas. So here we have this paradoxical situation. How do we get out of these situations? How do we? Uh, how how do women get go to school and get an education, and at the same time maintain the tortilla tradition? And I speak to a lot of indigenous gender equality activists, and they have all kinds of solutions. You know, for instance, to give families their own meal uh, for milling, so they don't have to go to the mill at five a.m. to involve the men in the tortilla production, at least so they can get firewood, just to kind of make it less of a women's uh, women's lot and women's responsibility and to, you know, just kind of involve the community. But, you know, these are big issues. And when the women, indigenous women, get out of their communities, go to school, get an education, are they still, you know, they kind of assimilate it into the kind of more white, mestizo Mexican society. So it's it's... it's ultimately for these communities to make these decisions. Uh, but there's a lot of grassroots activism to help women deal with the situation. After all your travels writing this book, Anya, do you uh, worry about the way culture has been commodified? I think there's no way, uh, no way uh, around it. Everything has been commodified. What I discovered, not just culture, our identities have become commodified because everything is worth money. Everything is promotable. Uh, our ancestral roots, you know, our nostalgias, uh, the foods that we ate, uh, everything is in this endless cycle, this neoliberal cycle of commodification. And um, I think as long as we're aware of it, 
and we understand, you know, we understand that even something like authenticity is a kind of marketing marketing tool, right? So we go somewhere looking for the best laksa or for the best pilaf. Uh, and at the end of it, you know, there's someone making money off of our quests. Uh, you know, this is inescapable, unfortunately. And I think we just have to maintain our dignity and maintain our wits and uh, be aware of what's going on which is one of the reasons I wrote this book. It addresses all these issues of commodification, of globalization, uh, of nationalism and nations being essentially constructs. And the more you know, the more you understand, the more you become an educated consumer, I think the more you appreciate what uh, what life brings us and what culture brings us. Let let us end where we began, Anya, the, the question of cultural ownership of food hit home for you in a very real way when Russia invaded Ukraine. And in a very tragic way. Uh, so I was thinking of what to write about in the epilogue for this book and I had something else in mind, Thanksgiving, which is a big American holiday in my multicultural neighbourhood. But then... Putin uh, launches his full-scale invasion of Ukraine, even though the war has been going on since 2014 already. And uh, in the final epilogue, final chapter of the book, I'm reflecting on borscht, which is um, Ukrainian national soup, a beet soup, but that all the Russians also ate. So I grew up eating borscht. Uh, my mom is from Ukraine, uh, from Odessa, but she was uh, culturally from Moscow and we're culturally we're Russians. And it's the kind of soup that everyone in the former empire ate. You know, it's just you know, like an absolute common dish. Um, but then after the war broke out already in 2014, there's all these fights for ownership of this dish between Ukraine and Russia. And Ukraine claiming correctly that historically it is a Ukrainian dish. Uh, and of course, it is a Ukrainian dish. So in the final chapter, I reflect uh, on this tragic situation where I basically want to relinquish being Russian because even speaking the language of Putin's aggression, uh, having the collected works of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Russian classics on my bookshelf, I feel intensely guilty and somehow implicated and somehow you know on the wrong historical side uh, of this war, which, you know, absolutely is a black and white situation where Ukraine is right and Russia is just this horrifying genocidal aggressor. And so who owns Borsh? Uh, so the question of cultural ownership that I reflected, you know, for five years while working on the book suddenly lands on my own dinner table with this visceral, tragic intensity. Um, and I spend, you know, the rest of the chapter kind of decolonizing Borsh for myself and trying, you know, you inviting Ukrainian friends to share a meal and to talk about who we are and who we will become, and uh, coming to the conclusions that Russians and Ukrainians are not going to eat borscht together again for generations. And so this whole benevolent idea that food brings us together kind of explodes, right? Uh, but this is what happens. I mean, the realities of life are the realities of life. And uh, we believe in these mantras. We believe in these cliches that food, you know, is this great force and uh, it uh, kind of helps us conquer divides. But in fact, you know, it doesn't always, it's not always the case. I've been talking to the marvellous Anya von Bremsen 
an award-winning food writer and author, and her latest book is National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home. It's published by Penguin Random House. Anya, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.